The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. TechTown Detroit is a business incubator and accelerator, helping tech startups and local businesses launch and grow. TechTown supports businesses with co-working, office, meeting, and event space. They also connect entrepreneurs to resources and learning and networking events in Detroit. TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. Hey everybody, happy Monday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. A short week, only a few days, of course, as we get ready for the Thanksgiving holiday here in our fair city, and frankly everywhere in the United States. Looking forward to this weekend meal, of course. This is a, a big thing for me. Leftover turkey might be my favorite thing in the world. Anyway, coming up on today's program, thinking of things you're going to do or like to do while you've got a couple of days off, well, podcasts are always a good way to go. And of course, my podcast is one I truly recommend, but today my guest is my friend George Hunter. He's been covering the crime beat in the city of Detroit for a long time, and he now has a new podcast called Sins of Detroit. So fans of true crime podcasts, this is a good one for you. This one taking a look at people who are wrongfully convicted. At least the first season, anyway. We'll see what George decides to do after that. But stick around. George Hunter, my guest today on The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Samaritas, the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. However, Samaritas also provides a number of other services around the state. They are one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in Michigan. They serve homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They also provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families and also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas, we thank them for their support here at Deadline Detroit. Hey, welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me today. And uh, I always like to talk to other people who are doing something similar to I Am Podcasts. Um, it's an exciting new field, and it's a really, really great way to do some niche storytelling on subjects that a lot of people might be fascinated by. And one of those subjects, true crime podcasts, are going through the roof right now. People have been finding them. There are a number of great ones based in Detroit, and we have another one to add to that list. My friend George Hunter at the Detroit News has been covering the crime beat for a long time in the city and the criminal justice beat in the city of Detroit. He now has a new podcast out called Sins of Detroit. The first season focusing on people who were wrongfully convicted. He is my guest today. George, welcome. It's a pleasure. Appreciate you having me. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So so let's talk a little bit about this. Um, we'll get into the podcast and the format and all that sort of stuff in just a little bit. But why was it uh, wrongfully convicted people that you that you wanted to get into in the season one? Well, it's an issue I've covered extensively, and, and it, it's it's an issue that that's pertinent right now. There's been a record number of people in the last few years getting out of Michigan, out, out of prison, wrongfully convicted people, and most of these are from Detroit, and most of them stem from all the problems that the Detroit Police Department was having in the years leading up to the 2003 consent judgment, and for years after that. It's not like the problems automatically stopped, and it's certainly not the, like the problems have stopped now. There are still problems in this department, but I think objectively, my take on it, trying to be as objective as I can here without offering an opinion, but I kind of have to. I think I don't. I think it's night and day from what it was when I first started on that beat in 1998, and I've kind of I went out to Macomb for a minute, and but, but on and off I've been on the beat for 21 years now, 
And when I first started, there were just rampant civil rights abuses. It was almost done in the open. People joked about it. Um, the, and it was all laid out by the Department of Justice, all these things that were happening. There were three elements of the consent judgment. The first was the excessive force. And they were clearing cases that, I mean, uh, of anybody, for uh, Eugene Brown, the guy who shot, I think it was nine different people. One of the cases mm-hmm. they said was a good shoot. He shot a guy through a closed door. I think he killed the guy as a biker or something. There's no scenario where it's okay to shoot through a closed door. There might be a few, but that wasn't one of them. I mean, even as trying to be as objective as I can, there were some ridiculous findings coming out. So that was one of the elements. The second and third kind of tie into the wrongful convictions. They were rounding up witnesses who hadn't done anything. Yeah, round up the usual suspects. Yeah. Throwing people in jail until they agreed to testify against somebody. Yeah, this happened to a buddy of mine in southwest Detroit. They were hanging out with a buddy and... And a, a guy came in and blew his head off. They watched this happen. Our, a couple friends of mine, two friends actually, they watched it happen. This traumatic thing, the cops show up and they take them to jail. Wouldn't let them go to the bathroom, kept them in a hot room um, for like days. And they hadn't done anything. So, so what happened, according to, I talked to people you know, who are innocence advocates, and what they say is that that practice led to a ton of wrongful convictions because they were leaning on people until they told him what they wanted to hear. It's like, either, okay, if you, don't, if you don't say he did it, we're going to charge you. And here's, the, here's the, the worst part is they would come back to court, according to, I talked to David Moran over at the Innocence Clinic mm-hmm. at U of M, and he says a lot of these people would come back to court and say, look, I was coerced into saying this. And they'd say, no, then we're going to charge you. You know, that You're going to get in trouble for having lied to police. Someone's going to jail. Yeah, basically that's what Justly Johnson's exact quote was, that one of the guys who spent, I think, 19 years, and I actually covered his case in 99. He, him and Kendrick Scott were convicted of um, killing a woman in front of her three kids the day before Mother's Day in 1999. And that's exactly what he said. Is, you know, they, they didn't care who did it. Somebody was going to get blamed. There was a lot of pressure to close these cases. So we, as long as we can close it, we don't care if the guy did it. And in many of these cases, a lot of these guys had a criminal record or something. So there was thinking among the officers. And I've heard cops say this. Well, he's a piece of you know what. So maybe he didn't do this, but he did we, something. Yeah, so exactly. The, uh, here's, the, here's the problem with that, that if you throw this guy in prison, whether he is a piece of whatever or not, I mean, aside from that issue, the real guy who did it is still out there running the streets. So that guy, I'm, uh, you know, is ostensibly a piece of you know what, too, if he killed somebody. But, you know. Well, and, and this speaks to obviously department culture right that this was an accepted practice uh you know as long as their conviction numbers were there it looks like they're closing cases that's what they are judged on uh that's how they are that's how they are often judged and, and this is something the federal government came down very hard on the city of detroit over this and they've had to dramatically change their practices uh especially over at the jail and everything else that went along with it but you know when you talk to police officers about that time in detroit and we're talking the 70s when detroit became murder city when a lot of these practices were really sort of ramping up when a lot of these guys who are getting out now were first convicted yes. uh what are they saying was the pressure on them to do it was it coming from on high or was it just a desire to, to clean up the streets so to speak uh, a little bit of both. I mean, in some cases, these these I think in some cases it was just what you call pure evil. You know, we're going to put this guy in prison. In some cases, it was overzealousness. You know, where you just you want this to be. You know, maybe you just you don't cynically think, okay, he's innocent, but I don't care. Um, you know, 
Some of the cops I talk to will defend that practice and say it's worse than what the feds made it out to be. I've heard that from a number of cops through the years that, you know, and that the consent judgment really didn't do anything and that there have been, there's certainly people that argue there have been no improvements. And some people will argue that DPD is worse than they have ever have been. You know, I mean, I can only go by what people tell me and it, it, within the confines of this discussion of innocence, there has been a lot of accolades given to both DPD, Chief Craig, and Kim Worthy, believe it or not. Kim, and this I always say is that in my career, I've never seen a public, the opinion of a public official among a particular community goes, you know, swings so wildly to the other side. Kim Worthy was for years the bane of the, uh, she was she was not well-liked among the innocence community. I don't think I'm letting out any secrets here. But after she hired Valerie Newman and started that Conviction Integrity Unit in 2017, a lot of people said, okay, because, you know, Valerie Newman has an impeccable reputation in the innocence community. She she has worked for years, you know, coming out of her pocket to pay, you know, just, just she has a great reputation. And they're, for, for, from all accounts, they're doing good work over there. That, that this It's kind of a new day. That they've, they've, I believe the last count I had, they had exonerated totally five people, mm -hmm. and they'd gotten new trials for another five in less than in about a year and a half. When I talked to Val Newman about six months ago about that, um, so so that you know, ten people that have been either exonerated or granted new trials because the evidence was tainted. So there is a new focus now um, to right some of these wrongs, and a lot of these cases were the low hanging fruit where it's obvious, it's incredible they got convicted in the first place. You know, so it points to a bunch of holes in the criminal justice system at several stops through the, through the you know, merry-go-round. Uh, my guest right now is George Hunter, of course. He's got a new podcast called Sins of Detroit, season one, looking at people who have been wrongfully convicted and problems in the criminal justice system in the city of Detroit. Uh, it seems that with these different examples you're giving throughout season one, there are a couple of commonalities for all of them. One, forced confessions, uh, you know, pushing people, pushing people to actually confess for something they didn't do because that was making up. You get a forced confession, then you don't have to rely on the forensic evidence. And the Detroit Crime Lab was obviously hugely problematic. Yes, we, we that that's the focus of episode four. And it's an incredible case that kind of the, the folks that I talked to say this perfectly illustrates all the problems in the crime lab. That was shut down in 2008. Um, Michigan State Police did a random audit. They they grabbed, uh, um, I forget, 200 cases, I yep. think it was. But they grabbed a bunch of gun cases, and they found error rates in 10%. And that's pretty, that's <laughs> yeah, pretty it's, severe. It's mind-boggling. You know, even in, in Detroit, you know, you cover crime. You, it's hard to be shocked. You see a 10%, and at random, that's incredible. So they shut the whole operation down. It was just a mess. Dave Moran over at the Innocence Clinic insists this is not mistake. These are not mistakes. This is fraud. And the case of the case he pointed out to is uh, Desmond Ricks, and in that case, um, it's kind of a long winding tale. It's kind of interesting. So, so he was coming home from his daughter was born. So he a buddy drove him there. He was driving him back. The buddy said he wanted to stop at the Top Hat Restaurant, which is one of those you know white sure. porcelain burger joints, yeah. you know, old school places. So he stops in, um, and and. I want to see Justly. I get these guys mixed up, so many of them. Um, Desmond Ricks is waiting in the car. His buddy gets shot by another guy. The waitress testified that it wasn't Ricks. So anyway, he, he gets out and runs, Ricks does. He sees his buddy get killed. He drops his coat, and his wallet's in there. So the cops see that, and they go to the house. They assume it's the shooter. 
Anyway, they get his mother's gun out of the bedroom. The very next day, the, the crime lab came back with a report saying they test fired that gun and it matches the autopsy bullets, okay? So he was convicted on that. He actually, something that I'm told was very rare back then, according to Moran, is, is, is Ricks asked for his own independent forensic evidence. So they got a guy um, named Townsend, a Michigan State Police retired forensic examiner who now did this sort of expert witness stuff. So he, he, the cops provided him with two bullets, two shell casings, you know, two of the shell casings. And 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 the gun. So the, so this independent expert fires the 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 gun that he was given into the water tank, and it matches the two bullets that the cops had gave him. So he ends up testifying for the prosecution, and then and, and Ricks gets convicted. Um, years later, they shut down the crime lab, and Ricks reads this, so he sends a copy of the article to Townsend, the independent guy. And what's interesting is Townsend, to his credit. He went and visited Ricks in prison and told him, you know what, for all these years, this has been bothering me. And I didn't say anything at first when I was first given these bullets by DPD, but I thought it was really strange because these bullets were pristine. If you take bullets out of an autopsy, if it's gone through a skull or through your body, the bullet is going to be mangled. Sure. And then the uh, there's going to be blood on it and stuff. And these were just perfect, pristine bullets. And so anyway, long story short, the Innocence Clinic got involved. And they got them to retest, you know, the 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 gun that was taken out of the uh, the bullets, rather, that was taken from the autopsy. And the Michigan State Police's findings were that these were so mangled you could not identify a, that it, they came from a particular gun. So according to Moran, it had to be fraud because the, the the Detroit Police Crime Lab found the very next day that they matched the autopsy bullet. But the actual autopsy bullet, and what he, what they think happened was when when Townsend w- during the trial, when the defense wanted their independent guy, the the allegation made in the hundred million dollar lawsuit is that these two cops switch they 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 fired two shots into the water tank and then gave him that and said it came from the autopsy, and that was bothering him because. You know, he said he didn't look like bullets that had came out of a body. And then once he saw the crime lab, he says, "Okay, I didn't want to think they did this, but now that I'm seeing this crime lab, this was fraud." He went and he signed an affidavit, and, and Ricks was exonerated because of that. I mean, George, you've been covering this beat for so long, right? You've seen a ton of things, and and your every day, you know, your beat is basically to talk about people being awful to each other, um, and knowing that people are capable of doing these sorts of things. But then compounded on top of that, the possibility of bad actors. On the law enforcement side, how does that change sort of your perspective on what you're hearing from police, what you're hearing from prosecutors, what you're hearing from from uh, victims and and uh, and also the people who are, are accused? Because it's got to sort of shake your faith in the whole system a little bit. Well, I kind of, you know, I, I grew up in, in a poor neighborhood where the faith in the system was kind of baked <laughs> into the cake. That, yeah, you know, yeah. Just about everybody around me didn't have faith in the system. And, and there were some bad cops back then. I grew up in the Cass Corridor before they called it Midtown in the 70s. And there were a couple bad cops. Now, mind you, most of them were good or, or neutral. You know, most were neutral. But it's the two or three bad ones that stand out. And there were some. So, I mean, I've, I've always questioned the system. You know, and I, mind you, I have three siblings who are in law enforcement. I also have a uh, you know family that's that did prison time, so I kind of have it from from that perspective where I kind of have seen a lot of it. I grew up in that neighborhood where you see a lot of the what goes on. So, but it does. I mean, it, it certainly people, uh, and you have to understand that whenever you're dealing with human beings, that's what you're going to get. 
Um, I always try to say, well, I mean, is the ratio of unethical cops higher than the ratio of unethical journalists? I wouldn't say that it is. I don't know that it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Or unethical airline pilots or whatever, you know. And in both police and journalists, we wield a lot of power. And, and if you if you do that in a way that, you know, you can hurt, you can ruin somebody's lives. And that's what we're seeing with these wrongful convictions. It's, and you know, this is one of those few cases this is one of these few uh, topics where you almost have consensus you know everything's so politicized now and polarized you know even the the most left-wing bleeding heart liberal versus the most right-wing conservative you know they both agree because if you're a law and order guy and you put the wrong guy in prison what's that mean again that means that the real killer is out walking the streets so you want you know nobody thinks that the, the these people even if they did commit another crime which many of them did you know, then then bust them for that crime. Don't just, you know, don't, you can't just say, well, we got to get him for something, so we're going to throw him in jail. You know, so many lives have been ruined. It's it's incredible. Uh, you know, how important is it for you in this in this podcast to sort of bring personality, bring out the personality of these people who are involved in these, uh, so to get people to actually know them? Because if they're just reading a story about some of these people, it's just sort of a nameless, faceless kind of thing. Maybe you know the name, maybe you don't. But getting to hear them, Getting to hear other people talk about them as human beings, as opposed to something that's just a you know a name on a sheet, uh, does that make it easier to get people to understand the magnitude of why these wrongful convictions matter? Because for every one of these, there's there's somebody in another state, somebody else doing the same thing, and sure. nobody's giving them the time of day. I mean, I, I would hope so. I hope it does bring focus. You know, I can't. I tell these guys all the time, I cannot be your advocate. All I can do is, hey, I got a flashlight. Hey, everybody, look at what's happening here. You know, I can't be an advocate, even though, you know, I mean, come on. There are certain human things where I can't be completely neutral as a journalist. Of course. You know, killing somebody is wrong. I don't think I'm I don't think I'm compromising my objectivity. Throwing somebody in prison for something they didn't do is wrong, and I don't think I'm compromising my objectivity by saying that. And having said that, though, I cannot be their advocate. So, you know, all I can say is, hey, here's a flashlight. And as to your point, I think when you get into the audio medium, you can get a little more, you know, you hear the emotion in these guys. Now, my job as a writer when I'm writing on the printed page is to make that come alive, too. Sure, you know? sure. And but, I'm not suggesting you don't do that, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that was not my intention. No, no, I, I'm not. But, I mean, there are some advantages to audio. Yeah, in that and then regard. if you take that one step further, then you get advantages when you have TV, too, because, you know, and there's disadvantages to that, too. But, you know, everything, every medium has its different. It's interesting to, to delve into that medium because I'm a writer. I've been doing it that way for many years. So there were a lot of trial and errors. You know, trying to put this scene together. It was basically me. I worked on it myself. I'm a musician, so I did the music too. Um, so it was trial and error. I, I had to redo things and rewrite them because writing for audio is markedly different yes, it than is. writing for a page. You know, you want to wait a minute and get the pause and all that. So hopefully the story is told okay. You know, I did my best. No, they, they, they sound fantastic. And, and uh, like I said, you know, what do you think it is about sort of true crime? Because, again, there are some great podcasts out there that are covering this kind of stuff. Um, what do you think it is about this that fascinates so many people? Because you've gotten a nice reception for your stuff so far. Um, I want people to check it out. Again, it's called Sins of Detroit, and you can find it anywhere where you find podcasts. Probably right next to mine, by the way, everybody. Um, 
where was I on this question? Uh, you were asking, oh, yeah. what is it about true crime? Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think that is, that, that people are so attracted to these stories? I don't know. In fact, I got the idea for this because I keep getting, and I don't want to sound like I'm so, you know, I'm not trying to blow myself up here, but I get a lot of calls from Discovery ID, things like that, that they want to do documentary because this is blowing up everywhere. Um, not just true crime podcasts, but true crime, you oh, know. television, it's everywhere. There's a, whole, there's a whole network. Yeah, there, there's, yeah, exactly. And there's so many, you got all these new outlets like Hulu and Amazon's doing you know, Netflix is doing original programming. A lot of them are crime. People have been fascinated with crime from the you know, since there's been a media. Um, going back to the English Penny Papers <laughs> and the, the, the lurid. You know, if you read some of those stories, people complain about the media. Rightfully so. We 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 deserve a lot of the criticism we get, but. It wasn't the good old days. If you look back in the old days, they were, you know, I have a, I did, I gave a speech about this in a history of crime reporting one time, and there's photos of, you know, the, a mother who killed her children, just these lurid, you know, artist rendering of this, you know, as she raised the, you know, so this sort of thing is always, since there's been print publications, there's been a fascination with crime. Um, they would print all the hangings, for instance, in these little pamphlets that they had, and then that kind of carried over to... So there's always been a fascination with crime and the dark side of humanity, because I think the thing that I always used to wonder when I first started on this beat, I've stopped doing it now, because you wonder, okay, this person, particularly when somebody led a quote-unquote normal life, and then something happened. People wonder, you know, I mean, does, does this live within me? Do I have the capacity? You know, you you read about people all the time that, that were, you know, again, there's folks who have been criminals since they've been sure, 10 years sure. old. But a lot of times people who lived normal, again, quote, unquote, normal lives snapped or, or got greedy and broke bad, so to speak. You know, do I have that within me? I think that's the existential question that a lot of people, you well, know. It's the Jekyll and Hyde. Sure. You know, and also there's something, it's there to, to be, you know, crass about it, that there's something, Laura, people like reading stories that they can feel superior, I think, you know. It, well, yeah, at least I'm not that guy. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was why I used to say, you know, there was a reluctance at one time years ago to cover things in Detroit proper because there was a push to go out to the suburbs where the money was so to speak and it's like one thing that that kind that kind of theory didn't get is there's nothing suburbanites love more than to read about how messed up detroit is and allows them to feel superior not that it's true or not true i'm not saying that's true but i'm saying that in a lot of cases people like that so i think that may be part of it but there's always been a fascination with crime there you know it's just a fascinating topic because people who do these evil things you know that's that's pretty fascinating to me well, real quick, I mean, I sort of want to think about the thought process because there's a number of cases you could be looking at, a number of people who have pretty credible claims that maybe uh, their case was not handled properly. Uh, I spoke yesterday uh, to James Heath, Corp Counsel at Wayne County, uh, and the director of the uh, Shante Parker, who's the director of the Neighborhood Defense Services. They're trying to improve uh, indigent defense, allowing for actual investigators for people who don't have money to pay for those sorts of things to improve the criminal justice system. Um do you get a sense that there are people trying to do a lot better on this than they used to? It, it really does seem that there, particularly in the area of wrongful convictions, as I said, that the DPD, there's been a sea change there. There's been a sea change in the prosecutor's office. Um, Kim Worthy is now getting tons of accolades for her work, or at least giving Val Newman that unit, and they're doing great work in trying to exonerate people and do it right. I think I think there has it. And I think they they have to straddle the uncomfortable. They can't, they can't 
go too hard on what used to happen because there's lawsuits pending. They sure. can't, you know. But you know, even I quote the police chief in this in this podcast, and he says that you know all these problems. He said they need the, the supervisors get the previous supervisors who in the old days they get mad at him when he says, "Look, there was no accountability there." He said, "But they need to own up to it because these things are all factual." When you have a police chief saying that, that's pretty powerful. And I know that a lot of people do resent that. I've talked to some of the old supervisors who, oh, he's just trying to make himself look like he came in like the sheriff and cleaned up the. You know, I've heard that too. It's like okay. Okay, but you know, I'm trying to be objective here, but the innocence people aren't telling me that. The innocence people are telling me that they're doing great work now, that they are taking a second look at these. It's not perfect, but it's better, I guess. Well, and uh, you know, we hope it is because, like I said, somebody in jail wrongfully is wrong, just period. Yeah, people buy that. Uh, well, George Hunter, uh, again. The Sins of Detroit is the new podcast. We really appreciate the work you're doing on this. It's been fascinating stuff so far, bringing some of these cases to light. And I don't want to give away too many of the details of the episodes because I want people to actually go back and listen. Um, and you've got five episodes in season one. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, hopefully you go forward with after that. Uh, that's the plan, right? Well, we'll see how it does. And, and it's the problem is I'm on a pretty busy beat. It's yeah. crime in Detroit. so you know, <laughs> And it's not like your staff's getting bigger over there. Yeah, exactly. And the, the crime, does, you know, the, the stories don't stop, you know, but... But so, yeah, I, I hopefully it'll do well enough to justify me taking another some more time off the beat and being up the hole in my basement studio and work till three, four in the morning. That's that's my little laboratory when I get down there. I'm a failed musician. Um, just because those A&R no, 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 guys no. don't recognize true genius. When it's not a failed it. <laughs> musician. It's a struggling musician. Yeah, exactly. There's a difference. Uh, an aspiring musician. Yeah, exactly. well, I'm, uh, I'm one of those as well. So I'm <laughs> uh, 52 and not far behind you. If I haven't, if I haven't made it by now, I don't think the A&R guys are going to be beating down my doors. Well, you might not make any money, but you still get to play. And I'll write songs for my wife, Lynn. There you Hi, go. Lynn. There you go. Well, all right, George, we really appreciate it. Thanks for being here today. Best of luck with this. And if you need any help, let me know. I'm more than happy to uh, assist if I can, just because I, anybody that wants to get in this biz, get in. It's fun. Well, thank you, Craig. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Again, George Hunter, my guest. The uh, podcast is Sins of Detroit. You can find information about it at the Detroit News, where, of course, he works as well. And Anywhere you get podcasts, so Spotify, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, anywhere else you get your podcast, you should be able to find it. should not be a problem. Hey, that's going to do it for the Craig Folly Show on this Monday. You may have realized there was no Lions discussion with Pat Batchelor on today's program. Pat and I talked about it. We just could not bring ourselves to talk about this team as it stands right now. They lost to the Washington Redskins yesterday. In typical Lions fashion... They imploded uh, at the end of the game, which just is just so lions. Anyway, next week, we, of course, have the Thanksgiving game and the Michigan-Ohio State game, so I'm sure that Pat and I will talk a week from today on the program about what is happening there. But not today. I just I wanted to spare everybody. Hey, if you like what we do on this show, give me a call. Or don't give me a call. Well, you could, I suppose, but if you got my number. But either way, send me an email. It's thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter, find me on LinkedIn, find me on Facebook, find me on Snapchat, Instagram, any of those places. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't. Give me your feedback. I'd love it. We'll talk again tomorrow. I'll see you then. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.